And of course, when Russia converted to Christianity, there, there was a big effort to convert these, these people. But the old, uh, the old ways remained in, in folk customs, folk traditions, folk seasonal festivals and so on. They never, they never died out completely. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by author and scholar Christopher McIntosh to talk about his latest book, Occult Russia, Pagan, Esoteric, and Mystical Traditions. Christopher discusses the survival of traditional indigenous pagan practices, hyperborea, Russian millenarianism, the motif of the woman clothed with the sun, and the belief that Russia is to lead the world to a new age of spirituality. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Christopher McIntosh is a British-born writer and historian specializing in the esoteric traditions of the West. He has a doctorate in history from Oxford University, a degree in German from London University, and a diploma in Russian from the United Nations Language School. He is the author of many books, including Beyond the North Wind. He joins me today to discuss his latest publication, Occult Russia, Pagan, Esoteric, and Mystical Traditions. Christopher, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for your time today, and congratulations on the publication of Occult Russia. I found it quite fascinating and engaging, and it left me wanting to know more, (laughs) a lot more. And I think that part of this is that Russia is a mystery to many of us in the United States in particular, and it's always been posited as, you know, our evil other, and I know it's not. And one of the things that struck me in the book was the number of similarities in terms of spiritual and religious traditions. So I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you this morning. I thought that the best place to begin, though, is acknowledging that the majority of my audience is in the United States. And I know that many people here, at least of a certain age, still think that Russia is synonymous with the former Soviet Union. And, you know, this may even be true of younger generations. I'm not sure. I do know that Russia is, I think, the largest country in the world, and it covers a vast territory and geographies, ethnicities, and cultures. So I thought that maybe the best place to begin would be to ask you to say a few words about Russia. Right. Well, as you say, it's a vast country. It stretches from basically from the Baltic Sea in the west to the Pacific in the east. It it is, as you say, I think the largest country in the world. And it has many, many different peoples and ethnicities and language groups within its borders. 
ranging from the Mongol, Mongol populations in the east, the Yakut and the Buryat and so on, to the uh, Slavic, Slavic people. And there's been an admixture as a result of the, the various invasions of Russia. For example, they were ruled by the Mongols for about two and a half centuries from the 13th to the 15th century. And they, they left behind their influence on, on Russia through, <clears throat> through intermarriage, through la the language, through various <clears throat> other things, cuisine and so on. And there is also, there are also other ethnic groups like the, the Sami in the in the north northwest, and the the Turkic Turkic populations in the south. So it's 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 a great a great mixture, and that's one of the things that makes it so fascinating. With all of these different ethnicities and mm -hmm. you know the geographies, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that from a, I guess, like a world religion perspective, mm -hmm. there was one group of people that have been hypothesized, and maybe it's more than a hypothesis, but that would be the Indo-Europeans. And right. my understanding is that the Indo-Europeans, they're homeland was the Russian steppe lands. Yeah. Well, most archaeologists and anthropologists would, would probably tell you that they originated from, from that area, from rough, roughly the area that is now the, the Caucasus or the central steppe land, and then emigrated outwards. And some of them ended up in India and others emigrated westwards and became the, the original inhabitants of, of Europe. So yeah, that's, that's basically the, the story of the Indo-Europeans. So the, the, this, this is the connection with, with India is very interesting because one, one can see in the Russian language that there are great commonalities between Russian and for example, Sanskrit. And there's a story about an Indian professor who was visiting Russia, I think back in the 1950s. And he was staying with a Russian family. And the mother of the family was showing around the neighborhood. And she, <clears throat> she pointed to one house and she said, that's our house, which in Russian would be Etanashdom, Etanashdom. And he was astonished because it would have been almost the same in Sanskrit. It was something like etat nas dam in Sanskrit. And bits of conversation that he heard around him sounded, sounded to him just like Sanskrit. So that's, uh, that's very interesting, this, this link between Russian and Sanskrit. Yeah, I was quite fascinated by that. I studied Sanskrit for a little while. Did you? Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm not 
I, I, I think I forget all of that I learned for the most part, but I, I did find that really interesting. And, you know, having a background in the history of the Indian religious traditions and the mm. idea of the Indo-Europeans or the Aryans, you know, I found it really interesting, but also knowing that in these migrations that they influenced, you know, the most likely the Persian Zoroastrian tradition, you know, there are direct connections mm. between that and the Vedic mm. traditions of India. But also, you know, linguistically, at the very least, we can see connections with some of the older Greek gods as well and yeah. their names. So in many ways, you know, it seems like Mother Russia then is the mm. mother of many of the Western religious traditions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so along that line, there are, I guess, the in. I guess it would be fair to refer to this, maybe, I don't know, the indigenous traditions of Russia, mm. which would have been shamanic and pagan, I believe. Yes. And I wanted to ask you specifically about the pagan traditions, because, and this is kind of based on my understanding of what's happened in places in, especially in Britain, that with the advent of Christianity and the removal, <laughs> put it that way, removal of mm. pagan traditions, you see some elements of paganism preserved. I think mm. like the ancient Celtic goddess Brigid, for example, becomes Saint yeah. Bridget, right? Mm. And you wrote that the pagan traditions and gods never entirely disappeared from Russia. Right. And so one of the questions I had for you was what actually was preserved and has there been, like we see, especially in Britain, a attempt to reconstruct pagan traditions? What kind of is the foundation of that in my mind is when we look at Wicca, for example, which is an mm. attempt to reconstruct ancient mm. pagan traditions, but a lot of it is imaginal in some ways. And yeah. I'm not saying that mm. it necessarily in a negative point of view, but I, I, I was just curious if you could discuss the pagan traditions of Russia and this sort of neo-paganism. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think there are really two levels here. There's an original paganism, which has existed since before Christianity and has been preserved in various ways. There are regions of Russia where the, the influence of Christianity was, was weaker and indigenous traditions survived to a greater extent. For example, in the the, the, the shamanic areas in, in Eastern Siberia, and also the people of, of the, the northern part, the northwestern part of Russia, like the Sami, and <clears throat> the Sami who were similar to the, to the Laps of, of Scandinavia. And these, these people had their own indigenous pagan traditions. There's also a, a, a people called the, the Mari, 
who actually have their own republic in Western Russia. But, but by now, the majority have been converted to Christianity, but there's, there's still a proportion of them who, who've remained true to the old religion. And of course, when Russia converted to Christianity, there, there was a big effort to convert these, these people. But the old, uh, the old ways remained in, in folk customs, folk traditions, folk seasonal festivals, and so on. They never, they never died out completely. So there's always, there's always been a, a pagan layer there un, under the surface. Well then, and, and also, also there's the fact that there was what, what the Russians call dvoyaveri, a, a dual belief, whereby people would have a foot in, in both camps. It, it was always a rather tense relationship between the, the church and, and paganism, but there was a sort of modus vivendi. And um, well, then, when, um, well, uh, during, <clears throat> during, during the communist era, of course, um, paganism was, was suppressed along with, with other religions. But with the, the, the end of communism and the, the, whole, the whole sort of new spiritual search that started in, in, in Russia at that time, there, 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 it, there grew up a neo-pagan movement, which drew partly on the existing, the existing traditions, but partly was also, as you say, a reconstruction. So these, some of the old festivals, there's one midsummer festival, for example, which at one point it was sort of co-opted for the co-opted by Christians, it became the, the festival of St. John. Mm. But, but basically everybody knew that it was, it was an older festival. And today at midsummer, thousands of people gather at various sites, in, in particular one called Arkaim, in the, I think, in the Urals, which is now considered sort of Russian equivalent to Stonehenge. And uh, yeah, this is the scene of hu a huge gathering at, at midsummer. Yeah, so, and there's now, there's now a, a very strong pagan movement. There, there, are, there are people, there are now, there are now pagan priests who conduct pagan ceremonies, pa pagan weddings, pagan burials, and so on. So it's, it's quite a thriving movement in, in Russia today. And one of the things also in regards to this is the shamanic and this yeah. kind of reconstruction. One of the things I wanted to, I guess, note or comment is in some of the readings that I have done, especially looking at the Greeks and the Greek, especially the pre some of the pre-Socratic philosophers, that it's been argued that there is this sort of shamanic element to it. And they yeah. always point to it having its source in Hyperborea. I hope I'm pronouncing yes. that correct yes. correctly. Yes. And, and, and I found that really interesting that, again, mm -hmm. going back to sort of foundations of 
you know, Western religious and spiritual traditions, we can kind of take it back to the Russian area that there seems to be this almost like, you know, and, and even the word shaman comes from, isn't it the, the Sami, I believe is where it came from originally, or the Tungus, I forget off the top of my head. I I hadn't heard that, but it could be true. Yes. Yeah. And and I know that you wrote about Hyperborea and you have this whole chapter on, I think you refer to it as the never, never lands. So, yes. Yes. But is Hyperborea, and I, I know you also talk about Shambhala, but I wanted to focus on Hyperborea. Is there a historical reality to it, I suppose, or is it just a kind of mythic land? There may be a historical reality. It, 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 it can't be definitely proved one way or the other, but there is some evidence. And back around the, the 1920s, there was a Russian archeologist, Batchenko, who led an expedition to the northern part of Russia, next to the Arctic Circle, particularly to a place called the Kola Peninsula, and he, he believed in Hyperborea, and he, he believed that he had actually found Hyperborea and that the, the native inhabitants, the Sami, were actually descendants of the Hyperboreans. And he found all sorts of interesting prehistoric remains there, like pyramids and paved roads and, and labyrinths and things of that sort, which seemed to indicate that there had been some, some kind of ancient civilization there in prehistoric times. So th- th- there, is, there, there is that evidence. And there's, well, there's, there's some written evidence as well, but the, 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 the human, the traces of, of, of human habitation that have been found there tend to indicate that, that the, the prehistoric inhabitants were rather primitive sort of hunter-gatherer people. So that's, that would seem to contradict the idea that there was, a, that there was an advanced Hyperborean civilization. Mm. But I, I go into this in my book, Beyond the North Wind, into to, to some, some of the pros and cons for the existence of Hyperborea. But it's 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 a it's a continuing it's a subject of continuing interest, and there, there have been further archaeological expeditions to that region since the fall of communism. Hmm. And there's a whole mythology that has really grown up around Hyperborea, and there's there's for example a whole school of artists who are painting the, these fantastic pictures of Hyperborean scenes, sort of amazing cities and and ports with people riding around in sleighs driven by, pulled by mammoths and things like that. So it's it's something that's that's really captured the imagination of the Russians. It's, yeah, I would love to see some of those pictures. I know that you've got some artwork in the book, but I don't think there's anything that I can recall of Hyperborea. You, you, can, easy, you can easily find them in the internet. If you, okay, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I'll, I will definitely look into that. One of the things along these same lines with the the Sami and the I guess the Mari as well and this indigenous shamanism you noted and this was one of the things that prompted me to ask you about this sort of reconstruction was mm -hmm. that the american scholar and kind of the person i think largely responsible for the development of what i would refer to as a neo-shamanism uh, michael harner uh, yes. was actually working with the sami to was it to reclaim or reconstruct their practices yeah, yeah, that's that's a very interesting story because the Sami underwent a terrible conversion campaign. But I guess this would have been around the 18th century or so, when um, there was a, a huge effort to convert them to Christianity. And for example, the their drums, the, the, the shaman's drums were were confiscated and burned in huge bonfires. And so it was a, it was a very systematic attempt to destroy their religion. But uh, somehow it, it didn't die out and some, some individual families probably continued practicing the religion in secret. And then when, when it became easier to, to Revive the religion. They they then they then had to to a certain extent to, to reconstruct it, and and this was was where Michael Michael Hanna was able to help, and he was able to because I mean shamanism is something that one finds throughout the the northern hemisphere. It's, if you go around the Arctic Circle. All the indigenous populations around the Arctic Circle are, are basic shaman, basically shamanic cultures. So Hana had a, a knowledge of the shamanic traditions in, in different regions, and he was he was then able to show them how how they could, in in a very practical way, revive their shamanic tradition. And that, that to me is a very inspiring example of how the academic can, can actually have a, a very beneficial influence. And it, one of the things that comes to my mind is there are, how do I want to say this? It, looking at the history of religious traditions i've often said that the shamanic is probably sort of the er kind of practice the original mm -hmm. going back probably to the paleolithic mm -hmm. and there has been a certain amount of criticism of cultural appropriation for people who want to explore shamanism and the shamanic and and i think some of that had been leveled at michael harner himself and i find it endlessly fascinating though that there is this alternative view yeah. that he was able to assist people reclaim reconstruct part of mm. their indigenous traditions yeah absolutely yes yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. That gives me a lot of hope, I think, <laughs> because, you know, I, I think that that's something that people are worldwide are seeking for some other ways of exploring yeah. and mm. trying to find their spiritual roots in many ways, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So something that I often or also found very interesting, and it was a theme that appeared several times in your book, is this millenarian view hmm. that there's this expectation of a coming new age. And you say yeah. that you wrote that this crops up again and again in Russian history. Yeah. And I was curious in a couple of ways regarding this, because my knowledge base is mostly in the American religious tradition. Mm. And I know that there is, has been a millenarian thread that runs throughout, but this is all based in Protestant tradition and yeah. Russia, of course, you've got the Russian Orthodox church, which is not Protestant, but we also have ideas of a new age. And, yeah. and so I was wondering if you could maybe speak to this millenarian view, does it have connections with the Russian Orthodox Church? And I can repeat this question later. I know I'm hitting you with a bunch right off, off the top here, but this idea of a new age, because I'm also curious how that compares to the concept of the new age in the west or yeah i'll just say that and i know that there are connections there as well so mm -hmm. right well the um, this um, <clears throat> millenarian theme has taken various different forms in russia well one i can perhaps best start by talking about the orthodox church yeah please when, when Russia converted to Christianity, to the Orthodox religion, they basically looked to Constantinople as a spiritual center. But in the 15th century, Constantinople was taken over by the Turks. And at that point, the, the Russians started to develop the concept of Moscow being the third Rome. So the first Rome being the Rome on the Tiber, the second being Constantinople, and the third being Moscow. So the, 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 the Russian Orthodox Church saw itself as taking over the role of Constantinople after, after Constantinople fell to the Turks. And this theme has continued right up to the, the present day, and, it, and it's taken different forms. The, the, Russian, the, the Russians have a tendency to seeing themselves as, as have a kind, having a kind of messianic, messianic role in the world. And this has sometimes taken a secular form, for example, under communism when they saw themselves as the, the, the nation that was going to usher in the communist world revolution. And so, so that's, that's one, one form of, of millenarianism. But this, the, the, there's also there's an older sort of millenarian tradition that goes right back 
to the book of Daniel in the, in the Old Testament and the book, the book of Revelation and the writings of certain mystics like the 12th century Italian mystic Joachim of Fiore, who had the, the idea that, that history was progressing in three ages. Things tend to go, go in threes in these, in these millenarian traditions. So, so first you had the age of the, the father, which was the age of the law. And then you had the age of the son, which was the age of faith in the gospel. And then was going to come the age of the Holy Spirit, which was, which was going to be the age of, of love and joy and harmony. And uh, this notion, this notion of Joachim Fiore of these three ages struck very deep roots in, in Europe and, and uh, had, had a very wide influence and uh, including in, in Russia. So you see, you see it cropping up in all sorts of ways. And uh, one way is the, well, in, in the book of Revelation, there is mention of a woman clothed with the sun. There's, there's, going to, there's going to be a reign of the, the beast, the beast or the dragon, and then the dragon is going to be conquered when this woman clothed with the sun appears. And she's going to appear and she's going to give birth to a, a sort of a savior figure. And the archangel Michael is going to come along and finally slay the dragon. And this woman of the sun, woman clothed with the sun, became a symbol that was particularly powerful to the Russians. And she, she, she crops up again and again, right, right up to the, the, the present day. For, for example, there, was a number of, there were a number of writers in the period just before the revolution, so-called Silver Age, who, did, who wrote about this concept of the woman clothed with the sun. And uh, so that's, that's, that's a very powerful motif in, in Russia. And this, this, this millenarian thinking really continues. There's um, a, group of, a group of sort of conservative thinkers in Russia who believe that there's, there's another flood coming. Mm. So met metaphorically speaking, not a, not a, not a flood of, of the oceans, but a flood of basically an, an overload, an overload of, of information that is going to be cor corrupting and damaging to, to, to human beings. And that the, the role of Russia will be act to act as an ark when this flood comes to preserve a more, a more sane and, and human way of, of being so so there again you have another variation of the of the millenarian theme but but uh, it doesn't it doesn't take quite the same form as in america right uh, in america it tends to be more a kind of end of the world hmm. scenario kind of apocalyptic scenario it seems like the Russian understanding of it is more true to what apocalypse really means, which is a revelation, which is yes. coming out of a period of darkness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
This is just an aside, but when I was a much younger person back in the early 90s, I don't know why I would do this, but occasionally I would catch, it was, I, I guess I would ref- call him a televangelist of sorts, but he was an apocalyptic televangelist on American oh, yeah. television mm-hmm. and was always interpreting headlines oh, according yeah. to the book of Revelation. And I was curious when I video recorded him and then went and looked at the passages that he was like citing Mm -hmm. and they were just nonsense passages, you know, just gave him, you know, I guess the appearance of some kind of authority to Mm -hmm. rattle off all these biblical passages. But what was always fascinating to me at the time was that he was, you know, he was grounded in the book of revelation. So he said, but it was always against Russia. And, you know, it wasn't the woman clothed with the sun, but it was the, you know, his interpretation was, it was the whore of Babylon. And, and I find this really fascinating how, again, you know, the United States and Russia, this sort of duality that we've played historically, you know, looking at each other. I, I much prefer the idea of a revelation rather than the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. and, and I do want to look at this woman clothed with the sun because there was a, um, and I have some other questions too. I want to try to remember to go back to them, what you just said, but there was a, I guess it's a contemporary movement that I found really interesting that I think you connect to this woman clothed with the sun, and that's the Anastasia movement, which yeah, is now yeah. spread outside of Russia as well. Is that yes. correct? Yeah. Yes, so that's one, right. yeah. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the Anastasia movement. Yes. Well, let me let me just say a bit more about the figure of the woman clothed with the sun. Yes, please. Because this is what I what I would call an egregore, an, an, an egregore being a collective thought form on the inner plane created by many people thinking the same thoughts and focusing on the same ideas and symbols. And these egregores, they're similar to the Jungian concept of the archetype. Uh, these, these egregores collect energy, they, they collect thought energy, and they reflect energy back. So people plug into these egregores and there are a number of these that are that are evident in the in the Russian soul, the, the, the Russian psyche. One of them is one of them is the, this this woman clothed with the sun, and she crops up in in all sorts of ways. In a in a way, in a way, I think that the the inner soul of Russia is is feminine. I mean, one thinks of Russia as being a very patriarchal place. But but I, I would argue that that, uh, that it has has somehow it has a feminine soul and and you can see that in this this figure of the wo- woman clothed with the sun and how she she crops up everywhere. She crops up, for example, if the, the, the Russian word the Russia, Russia has two, the Russians have two words for the the, the homeland. One one is Otechestvo, which means the fatherland. The, the other is Rodina, which means the motherland, but it's it's Rodina, which is the the concept that that is is a much 
much more powerful, much more powerful of the two. And this concept of, of Rodina is, is very often invoked. For, for example, during the war, when Stalin needed to mobilize the Russian people against the German invasion, he found that the communist ide ideology just wasn't sufficient. It just, just wasn't, wasn't powerful enough to do that. And so, so the Russians invoked this symbol of, of the, 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 the Mat Rodina, the, the mother of, of the nation, Mat Rodina. And uh, everywhere these posters appeared showing a sort of heroic woman waving a sword and, and, the, and underneath the slogan, Mat Rodina Sovyot, Mother, Mother Rodina calls, Mother Rodina is calling. So, and, and another way she crops up is in a, a phenomenon like the, the Anastasia, the Anastasia movement. Well, the, the, the history of the Anastasia movement is, is very interesting. There was a, a businessman <clears throat> called Vladimir Megre, and I think, I think this was back around the, the 1990s or so. He was on a business trip in a ship going down the river Ob in Siberia from Novosibirsk down to the Arctic Ocean. And at one point he stopped in a, a particular village and well, there, there he met a woman he met a, a, a very beautiful, radiant woman called Anastasia, who took him, who lived in a cave in a forest nearby. And she took him off to this cave where he spent several days with her. And during this time, she imparted a whole teaching to him about how human beings can live a, a better life in greater harmony with nature and a, and a more healthy life and a, have a more, more, a more healthy sort of community life and so on. And it, it involved, it, it involved a, whole, a whole teaching about health, about raising a family, about agriculture, about all, all kinds of things. So then, well, this, this, is, this is Vladimir Megra's story. A lot of, lot of people think it, it, it was all a fiction, but this was, this was his story. So then he, then he went back to Moscow, he gave, gave up his business career and he wrote a book all about the teachings that she had imparted to him. And the book became a bestseller. And he went on to write a whole series of books about this Anastasia teaching. They were translated into many foreign languages and it started a whole movement. And basically it revolves around the concept of what they call homesteads, homesteads of something like two hectares each, which is the amount of land you need to be able to be self-sufficient. So these, these homesteads are, are grouped into communities, little villages, where they have a, like a community, community life and a community government and, and so on. And yeah, this, this system has started to be applied, not, in, not only in Russia, but many other places. Hmm. So that, that's basically the story of the Anastasia movement. So the, the question is, who, who is Anastasia? Do, does she exist or is she a, is she a, a figment of Megra's imagination? So my, my view is, well, I won't, I won't say definitely one way or the other, but I think it's, I think it's quite likely that she, she is a, 
a kind of egregore. Mm. She, she, she is a manifestation of this woman clothed with the sun who, who crops up so often in, in, in Russian history. I think that's the most realistic way to see her, that, that, mm. uh, that Vladimir Megre plugged into this egregore. And maybe she, maybe she manifested herself to him in such a way that she appeared as a real person. And, and really conveyed these things to him. Anyway, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't disparage the movement on, on those grounds because I think she conveyed something important to him. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we, we often forget that there are certain things that are, you know, there are symbolic truths. Something yeah, doesn't yeah. necessarily have to have actually happened have truth to it and you know and it seems to me that there would be a certain power to all of this because you know these are these little villages and plots of land we see this happening elsewhere i know it's also occurring to some extent in the united states with the creation of small eco villages sometimes they refer to them as intentional communities you know you write that you know in this movement they are to be co-creators with nature yeah yeah. these are this is a message that i think you know humanity kind of needs right now absolutely and you know it's what's interesting to me is you know part of my background is examining religion and spirituality and ecology. And it's often been argued that in order to move forward and to have a more sustainable future, you know, where we are put ourselves right with the ecology, we have to draw upon the religious and spiritual traditions. And even Mm -hmm. if Anastasia wasn't real. It's tapping into, like you said, this egregore, which yeah. I think gives it a certain power and motivational force that mm. probably wouldn't be in existence if you just, you know, look at the facts of our ecological situation. Yeah, um, yes, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, well, I, I have a, a theory about these egregores in, in relation to Russia. The, 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 the egregores exist in a kind of etheric realm, mm. an etheric field. And I think that the, I mean, normally there's a, a veil between ourselves and this etheric field. And I think in Russia, this veil is thinner than in other places for some reason or other, which is why these egregores are particularly strong in Russia. Mm. And there are are places where where the veil is is particularly thin. One one of them, I think, is the Altai region of Siberia, next to the Mongolian border. Where and I think that's that's probably one of the reasons why the shamanism is is so strong in, in regions like that. Do you think that the these egregores, because this is something I've looked at as well and am quite mm. fascinated with the idea, it, it seems like, you know, especially with you know the, the the woman clothed with the sun, that this is a positive egregore. Yes, yes. And and maybe it's just, you know. <laughs> 
my American pessimism, but I've looked at the negative aspects of it. I interviewed someone last year who discusses this and his name for it is Watiko and it's a sort of a negative egregore. Mm. Uh, would you say that the, the Russian egregores are more positive than negative? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Well, no, I think that there probably are a, f a few negative ones around. Mm. The, the, one of them is, I think, the Antichrist, the figure of the Antichrist, which is quite strong in Russian tradition. For example, when the Orthodox Church split and a group called the Old Believers broke away, to, to form their own their, their, their own sect. They believed that, that the mainstream of the mainstream of the Orthodox Church was was under the Antichrist. And uh, I think a lot of a lot of people thought that Stalin was the Antichrist at, at that time. So that, that uh, I think that's an example of a, a negative hmm. egregore. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I find that whole concept absolutely fascinating. Kind of going back to this idea of the new age, which we've been exploring here. I think that there may be another aspect. I hope I'm not incorrect here because I know that if anyone thinks about spirituality in Russia, a few things kind of come to mind. One, I think out of the Russian Orthodox tradition, you write that there's this sort of the archetype of the holy fool. Um, but I was thinking in terms of the classic, like the way of the pilgrim. And there's mm. this profound hermetic, and by hermetic, I mean living in a monastery. I guess I should say monastic tradition. Let me rephrase that, mm. monastic traditions, not hermetic. But also, aside from that, and these people aren't necessarily Russian, but they're connected. For example, Madame Blavatsky, the founder of the Theosophist movement, and Gurdjieff and Uspensky. Mm. And my understanding is the term new age was originally coined by alice bailey yes who came out of the theosophist movement and so when we talk about new age especially in the united states and probably some other places in europe it has these connotations of a movement that emerged out of these traditions that really kind of begin with like madame blavatsky and mm. I'm wondering if there is something similar then in Russia, comparative to how the New Age is understood in the United States and possibly other parts of Europe. Mm. Well, the, the, there was a very, very interesting movement called the, Cosmi the Cosmists, mm. which went back to a man called, called Fyodorov in the 19th century. Uh, Fyodorov was, I think, uh, I think he was called Nikolai Fyodorov. He, he was a very eccentric character who worked for most of his life as a librarian in Moscow. And he lived a very sort of austere ascetic life. And he had a, he developed an extraordinary theory 
that he, he that you could reanimate all the human beings who have ever lived from from their cosmic dust. Mm. Well, and th this went along with a whole whole other set of theories that he had that the Earth could be detached from its from its <laughs> solar orbit and used as a spaceship spaceship to travel travel through space and so on. Well, it it, it all sounds absolutely crazy. You know, you, you, you'd think he was, he was a madman, but he had an, an enormous influence. And one of the people he influenced was a man called Tsiolkovsky. And Tsiolkovsky, as, as a young man, went to Moscow and became a pupil of Fyodorov. And he, Fyodorov, basically gave him an education in physics and mathematics. And Tsiolkovsky then went on to become a brilliant rocket engineer and space technology engineer. And he, it was, he was responsible for all the calculations, which were the, the, the basis of the Russian space program. It was, it was his calculations that enabled Sputnik to be launched in the 1950s. So this, this was a very, very interesting example of the interface between a sort of what you might think was an absolutely crazy vision and a very practical, a very practical program. And that's, that, that's a very interesting sort of interface in Russia, I find. And it, 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 you find it in other areas as well. I mean, the, the Russians were doing they were doing parapsychological research before it was before it had really become widespread in the West. Mm. Uh, there was a there was a famous Russian woman called Nila Nina Kolagina. I think this was back in the 1950s, who could move objects around through through telekinesis. And this this sort of interface between what you might call the occult and science is is continuing today. And there's a, a very interesting institute in Siberia, in, in Novosibirsk. It's, it's called, it's got a very cumbersome name. It's called something like the Institute for Cosmo, Cosmoplanetary Anthropoecology, or something like that. Uh, but they're, they're doing very, very, very interesting research, co cooperating with shamans, and that's, that, that sort of thing. So that's very, very, in, that, that, that's a very interesting area. Okay. Yeah. I think that one of the things you wrote in the book in regards to this uh, cosmists was, I think something like the human consciousness is cosmic consciousness or consciousness of the cosmos. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I liked that. I found that fascinating. And again, this, I see parallels with things that are emerging in, in the West along those lines. And, and I know that we're running out of time here, but I, I did want to ask in regards to this new age, and this will be my final question for that. And, and I think this goes into this vision that you referred to of Russia as the, the, the new arc of sorts. Yeah. Hmm. is that the new age spirituality, especially in the United States, there is a consumerist aspect to it. Hmm. And it's very, in many ways, very materialistic in that sense. 
Mm. And I see the counter in Russia is a rejection of the materialism, which is interesting because under communism, it was an embrace of materialism. And now it's kind of moving away from that. And it seems that, and I think this is a theme that you begin the book with and sort of end the book with is this notion of, you know, not just the new age, but a re-enchantment. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like that's, that's the role that Russia or many Russians seem to feel that they are to play. And that part of the new age from a Russian perspective is that they have a spiritual mission. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And uh, I think you see that in the arts in Russia because People like artists, writers, filmmakers, and so on are regarded as people who are are there to convey a message, who are there to provide a teaching that is is going to inspire people. This is what what the Russian public expects from their great great artists and writers and filmmakers and so on. And I, I read an interesting interview with the filmmaker Tarkovsky, Andrei Tarkovsky, who said that he thought the the role of the the filmmaker was to promote beauty. And he he said that the the trouble with an artist like Picasso was that instead of of nurturing beauty, he had betrayed it. Mm. And so I thought that was extremely interesting from an an avant-garde filmmaker because how, how many avant-garde filmmakers in the West would, would talk in that way about beauty? Right. And you see this element of enchantment in the, the work of the artists that I was talking about, who, who were painting these amazing, amazing hyperborean scenes. And yeah, in, in liter- literature as well, I would say. Well, it seems like there can be a, we can learn from Russian spirituality, because I know one of the calls that I hear a lot in the West is we need to have a re-enchanted world. Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. Know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because mm. I think we've lost a lot of the magic. <laughs> we've lost a lot of the magic. All mm. right. Well, I, I, again, I know that we are out of time, unfortunately, but let me ask you uh, uh, the final questions here. What do you have coming up? Do you have any any other books coming out, speaking engagements, anything like that? Well, I've, um, I've written another book, which is al- already with the publishers and in the pipeline, which is called Occult Germany. Mm. So in, in a way, it's a sort of a follow-up to occult Russia. Germany is, Germany is the country where I live and the mm. country I know pretty well. And it's a country that is enormously rich in esoteric traditions. It's a, it's a key place in terms of things like the alchemical tradition, Rosicrucianism and, and many other things. So that's, that's what that book is about. Mm. Uh, l- looked at from partly from a somewhat personal point of view. Okay. I will look forward to that. I recently yeah. had a guest on who wrote a book on 
uh, national socialism and the occult. And oh, yes. that was very specific to that. But I think that there is quite a bit more to look at in terms of yes. German traditions. Yeah. Well, and, uh, the national socialist element has been written about right. ad nauseum. So right, right. I decided not to, not to say too much about that. I have had to mention it, obviously, but right, right. Um, my, my book uh, <clears throat> casts its net much wider. I'll look forward to that. Do you have an idea of when that book will be coming out? Well, I, I hope sometime towards the end of this year. Okay. All right. Is there, do you have a website that yes. people can go to to find out more about you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. That's w.osgard, as spelt O-Z-G-A-R-D, net, N-E-T. All right www.osgard.net. That's it. Yeah. All right. I will put a link for that in the show notes in the video description. I will also put links in for Occult Russia so people can oh, find it quite easily. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really enjoyed this. And I know we just touched the surface of what's in the book. So I highly encourage people who would like more information to get a copy of the book. It was a really fun read. And like I said, it left me wanting more. Right. It's been a great pleasure for me as well. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And that's a wrap on episode 69 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're a part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you would like to support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio, please consider becoming a patron. There are currently four levels of membership, seeker, sage, adept, and guru. Some of the perks available include early access to videos, shout outs to members, members only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio discourse server, a monthly book club, and the opportunity to join me and special guests for a monthly cocktail apocalypse, happy hour at the end of the world. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, or even coworkers that you think will enjoy it. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. I've mentioned a few times now that I often kid that I'm here in the Southland doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, please, by all means, help share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.